I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is coming off! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio joined by the 42's own Gary Doyle. How are you, Gary? Good, good. And you? I'm very well, thank you. Bernard Jackman is also in the building. Bert, how are you? Great, thank you. Good to be back. Super. Loads of new, the 42 members this week, and loads of them raving about all of our extra podcasts, uh, rugby podcasts, that is. I can say that as well because, coincidentally, I wasn't involved in any of them. Uh, for immediate post-match reaction pods, team news reaction pods, and performance analytical masterclasses by Owen Tulin on Mondays, go to members.the42.e and sign up for a fiver a month or 42 euro for the year. So coming up on today's show, we'll be chatting about the Wales game, obviously looking ahead a little bit to England, and we're going to try and chat as well about the women's campaign so far and the under-20s, but I think the biggest talking point, given it's been a an off week essentially for the Six Nations this week um, is the RFU's shenanigans yesterday in relation to the championship and the 50% funding cut that they have introduced. Uh, They sort of put a ribbon on it and tried to spin it as good news, Bernard, in their press release where they said they will continue to fund the championship. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's uh, Oh my God, unbelievable. But... um, just just to get your, your immediate thoughts on it, um, it seems so sort of jarring in a way. Like, whatever about a funding cut, but to slash it in half just seems in, in, incredibly extreme from the outside looking at it. And for clubs that are already really struggling to make ends meet, you know, you're talking about probably mass unemployment really for a lot of players and for a lot of staff at clubs next season. Yeah, it's not even that straightforward because because of the, the, the lateness of when they've done it. I mean, any proactive club is already starting to recontract people in in December, January, and, and some you know would be on two year contracts from next year, uh, or going into a second year next year of a of a fixed rate. So, how those clubs actually, I suppose, manage this drop in income is going to be um, very difficult for for a lot. Some some private benefactors are going to probably have to put their hand in their pocket. Some will run the risk of. Um, maybe going into 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 bankruptcy or receivership, and um, absolutely a lot a lot of players will be left, you know, hanging, you know. And it's, uh, I mean, I, I've I've read a few uh, statements from some of the chairmen of of the championship clubs, and I think their biggest issue is uh, the severity of the of the drop, um, uh, the lack of communication or warning, um, and they don't agree actually with the or a few that it's not a breeding ground to to develop future international players and I suppose you know looking at the current squad a lot of them have played in the in the championship um, earlier in their career and it's something that the um, the English clubs the premiership clubs do well they farm out players on a week to week basis on loan to, to championship clubs so that's that's not a really a, a valid reason I think to do it and also I mean fair enough the RFU need to make cutbacks they've cut 10% off the domestic game you know um, and then 50% off the championship it seems to be um a little bit uh, extreme and weighted against them. So the rumour is Premiership clubs have pushed for this um, as a way of getting more finance into their pockets and to ring fence the Premiership. So, yeah. uh, And of course, the argument in two years' time, three years' time, when the Championship becomes part-time and the level drops so much away from um, from where the, the, the Premiership is, no one will be able to make a valid argument that rings and fencing is bad. So, you know, I, I was pretty vocal on the whole Saracens thing around how I felt the, the goalposts changed due to the Premiership Rugby um, 11 or close being stakeholders and that and self-protection. And I think there's an element of, of, of internal pressure as well uh, to make the Championship less relevant, which will eventually lead to a ring fencing of the, of the Premiership. Yeah, because as recently as September, they were pushing for the automatic relegation from the Premiership to be abolished. Yeah, they have been for years, but they're getting louder and louder. Yeah, yeah. They, I thought they'd like, well, they'd sort of indicated that they'd given up on that pursuit in September, but this is sort of, in, in a way, an indirect means of doing it uh, down the line. Like, it might just happen a little bit more organically than it just being announced. Because if you look at the situation now, Newcastle are going to come up this year. They have an average attendance of 4,500, something like that. So in the Premiership, you'd imagine that'll increase again and they're worthwhile from the Premiership's point of view 
having there. Saracens will go down, but will bounce straight back up. So you'll probably have all of the clubs that you kind of want to be in the Premiership within the space of a couple of years. And then anybody else who comes up will be going straight back down and just replaced immediately by whoever goes down from the Premiership the year prior. You know, so like eventually it it will be ring-fenced, you would imagine. Yeah, well, once Newcastle come back up, there's no one else there who have... Coventry have some money at the moment and... um, uh, Ealing Trailfinders, uh, they're the two clubs who have a little bit of cash, but nothing like um, the wealth that other clubs have or, or the catchment area. Ealing's competing with clubs in London, plus they don't have the stadium. Yeah, sure, their uh, their average attendance is nine hundred. Exactly, they have a very wealthy benefactor. Um, he's put a lot of money into the ground there, but yet the ground wouldn't meet the criteria that Premiership rugby requires. So, um, yeah, very quickly they will have the clubs who have the financial clout, the geographical location um and stadium etc to to be premiership clubs and it'll just it'll just become ring fence like the pro 14 murray had a great piece about the situation facing irish rugby players abroad which he sent out to the 42 members on wednesday um obviously many of them in future may be impacted by the fact that the championship might not be an option for them uh, if you want to get those insiders' letters from Murray and Gary here and Sean Farrell as well, directly to your inbox, it's members at the 42.ie. They're essentially articles, but with added behind-the-scenes peaks at match weeks, etc., from the journalist's perspective, and they seem to be going down really well. Uh, Gary, your impression of Ireland's victory over Wales, how impressed were you, considering in previous podcasts you had been more vocal than a lot of journalists in calling for change and it wasn't all that different a team uh, to the one that we saw in the World Cup that actually produced the type of performance that we were looking for in the World Cup and last year I thought uh, it was very hard to pick holes in the performance very hard to pick holes in individual performances as well it's funny when you watch the game live and then you watch the game back your initial impression can sometimes be completely inaccurate for example I thought Ian Henderson had a quite a quiet game on the ball but then when you watch it the second time and and you analyze the stats he didn't at all like you know his his tackle rate and the amount of meters he carried were were impressive as were one of the things sorry a couple of things really stood out they shared the load really impressively in terms of the pack did in terms of ball carrying james ran was the best boy in the class yet again another gold star on on either side of the ball in terms of highest tackle rate and also the amount the the number of meters carried so he he is having an outstanding championship but it's backed up by the fact that stander has really excelled in the two games thus far other stats that come to mind uh at the breakdown they are they have been they were incredibly successful at the breakdown steals against the scots they won that battle 6-1 against the welsh they won at 3-2 also in terms of the the speed of recycling the ball from rooks their percentage rates are way higher in terms of doing it in from not to three seconds are way higher than any other team in the championship so that leads to go forward ball a bit more time and space for the backs to for the back line to get operating and you look at the number of meters that are being posted from the backs in terms of balls uh, the amount of meters they're they're generating when they get the ball in hand Larmer is setting the set as top of the charts for for the first two rounds of the championship not just with Ireland but throughout throughout the six teams Jacob Stockdale as well again the impression is that he hasn't got much ball in hand but when he has got it he's averaging what is it? It's uh, it's in the first in the first game against against the Scots. It was sixty me- sixty meters carried from four from four uh, four times he got the ball, and on last Saturday it was one hundred and fifteen meters. Conway is in great form as well. He's scored five tries already for Ireland this season. Again, his selection is vindicated on the back of that. Keith Earls, who essentially has lost his place to Conway, he hasn't scored a try for Ireland thus far this season. So. If you're analysing the first two games, we've got a new coach coming in. He was under pressure before he started because he was part of the previous regime, but he started with two wins. Now, again, you're saying, well, he should start with two wins. That has been the trend for Ireland over the last seven years or so. But even so, he's still got the job done. So if you're going to be critical of him in advance, then you have to give him some sort of praise uh, in retrospect on the back of the two performances. So thus far, quite impressed. But... Bigger tests 
evidently lie ahead. And again, I'll give you another boring stat before I leave. Far from boring. Since since Schmidt replaced Declan Kidney in the Six Nations uh, since 20, uh, 2014 till now, 15 home wins, one draw, one defeat. Okay? Away from home, eight wins out of 15 games. Okay? Of those eight wins, five are against the Scots and the Italians. Fair enough, you have to go there and win. And in 2017, they didn't win when they went to Murrayfield. So it's they're not gimmies. But bear in mind that the two away games are France and England. And the record there isn't fantastic. Two years ago, yes, it was. But the previous time that the Ireland beat France and England away from home in the same season was in 1972. So it's a big, big ask to turn a very good start into a Grand Slam. Oh, I was so happy there for so long, and then you drop that. Uh, 72. Yeah, like, Bernard, it's interesting. I don't know that anybody will necessarily be getting carried away with Ireland's form, even in, uh, in the knowledge that they did produce the type of performance that they did against Wales. Um, the expectations going to Twickenham will be relatively tempered, just given that it is England, and there probably isn't a huge amount to pick between the sides at the moment. At the risk of open, opening myself up to the type of bollocking to which uh, Matt Williams fell foul after the game, is there a caveat uh, in Ireland's victory that Wales probably weren't at the races? How much was it uh, due to the fact that Ireland sort of didn't allow them to come to the race? And in fairness, like if there were plenty of people when Ireland sort of underperformed against Scotland pointed towards the fact that Scotland played well. So when Ireland played well against Wales in a game that we had sort of put down as a 50-50, then you have to acknowledge that maybe Wales underperformed as well. Yeah, I think I think we actually didn't really let them play. We we shocked them a little bit in terms of how we played. They set up quite narrow on defence um, and we had the tools and skill set to expose that and get easy metres on the edges. Um, our attack and kicking game was, was very smart. I mean, we had five attack and kicks um, or two from Sexton, three from Sexton, and one from or sorry, two from Sexton, uh, two from Conway, and one from Stockdale, which um, actually gave us territory in their in their twenty two um, and changed the picture and exposed their backfield a little bit and, and I suppose put a doubt in their in their wings mind around what's happening behind them, which made those carries easier. Um, I actually, you know, I was worried about our power game or lack of power game against Scotland, and was probably shocked by it a little bit because that's always been an area we could go to under pressure. And you know, having watched Scotland again against England, I think def- they've definitely shored up elements of their defence. That was um, was their Achilles' heel, um, and you know they're not as as power inept as they had been. Um, some new players coming in have added to that, and I also think because we could see now again, the week later that Ireland were trying to evolve their game, and if you're in two minds around whether you play off nine or you play another ball at the back, that can affect your carries as well. I mean, the real reason Ireland were so good in 2018 um, and before that was people knew there was no pass corner to back or there was no tip on pass. It was literally carry. And if I was to support inside, outside, my job was to to latch on and, and clean out. So we had a very high ratio of, of, um, of ball retention. Um, and we were probably easier to get over the gain line with that kind of mindset as well because the opposition... You know, have to respect the tip on pass or the ball at the back, but yeah, we knew we weren't going to do it. Um, and I think against Wales, we saw that willingness to play the second wave and the third wave in our in our attacking shape more often, and we avoided basically the big collisions, which was you know in the space between uh, ten meters either side of the rook. We didn't really go there that often, only when we had to. Um, and when we did go there, we'd already kind of showed that willingness to go wide. And I think for the very first kickoff you'll see Larmer caught it in the right-hand side, 15, and he went straight across the field. Like, usually he goes on a jinking run. Uh, he goes straight first, and then he tries to pick off people. But he went straight across on a lateral run, which should be telling an under-14 team not to do. Um, but it was clear that he was trying to set a rook in midfield. Um, and Ireland had a plan then to get the ball wide to Stockdale straight away off that and, and put the kick in behind. And, you know, we should, probably should have scored off that. I mean, it, it wasn't an attack and scrum opportunity in the first minute of the game. Um, and unfortunately, you know, Tyke Furlong said afterwards they got a little bit over anxious and, and um, went too early and Wales got the penalty. But that's really smart. And I'm, I'm, there's definitely something they talked about from a kickoff send, you know, what they were going to do next. Um, and then from there, I think they got confidence and. They built into it, and, and the more touches Stockdale and Conway get, 
I think the more dangerous we're going to be, particularly when we're not slaves to keeping the ball in hand and we have the footballers to put those attacking kicks in behind because that's what makes a difference. Um, because the reality is if you keep going wide, wide, teams like Wales will get you coming back. You know, no matter what you do, if you're caught right in the touchline, um, no matter how much depth you have, they'll shut you down. Whereas Ireland were able to, again, change that point of contact to make them have to exit or, or even we got some set pieces in their 22 for it. So I thought it was very clear... Um, that tactically we're we're not becoming slaves to uh, to collisions, um, or we're trying to change that, and the conditions helped. I mean, you couldn't have done that in Murrayfield last last weekend, but um, I think the players are enjoying that. Their skill set looked vastly improved. I felt at the time of the the World Cup review that it was absolute nonsense to say we weren't skillful enough to play a different way. Like, that was just such an easy thing to say because it's such a generic statement that it's very hard to actually measure. Skills are very hard to measure, but the Irish team are. Very skillful, you know. No, like if you played, if you went to speak to Mark McCall tomorrow, um, and said, you know, do you think you're more skillful than Leinster? You know, he wouldn't for a second countenance it. Not, not saying it publicly, but just they would. No one in in Europe believes that they're more skillful than than the Irish players. So, and I think it was great for the players to see that or to show that from a from a passing point of view. I mean, the pass from Earls uh, to to Larmer uh, was was absolutely outstanding, um, and the pass I think from was it uh, Larmer to Conway. Um, or sorry, you know, to come in for his try, you know, where the blitz defence are coming from out to in, and you really got to trust your skill set and, and catch early to go across that blitz. Um, and we did it at both times. And and throughout the game, our pass accuracy was really good, and our catch accuracy was really good, and our understanding of, of when to pass and when to carry, etc. So I think, you know, speaking to some of the players, I think Cat and Farrell have put a big focus on that. Players are enjoying that. Um, and it was just great to see them get some rewards out of it quickly because, um, you know, Andy Farrell, uh, there's a lot of pressure on him. And now, you know, he's had two good wins. He's had two wins, one very good one. And I think that'll, you know, that'll help him just be, believe in his in his philosophy and help everyone settle down a bit because, you know, I was doing some corporate work in the, in the Viva Saturday Porter game and, and the mood had changed even from the previous week when I was back at some of the same boxes and people were getting, starting to really question where we were going. Um, so I just think that'll settle everyone down now and, players can kind of rebuild that connection with the fans and, and just enjoy their work so it's not just the media who are fixing no. it is what you're saying well yeah, well, maybe you're influencing them but uh, <laughs> yourself and Matt Williams are oh are, Jesus yeah are, are sending them out no look I think people were just disappointed with Scotland because we expected a backlash and we'd beaten them by whatever points we had beaten them in the World Cup and yet we were in a struggle but mm. I do think Scotland have improved and we were early days of a of an evolving game plan there's a question here in the WhatsApp group from Quaylon Gary, and um, when I read it initially, I was kind of like, uh, it's surely a little bit premature, but he asks, is this Six Nations already a success for Andy Farrell uh, after the doubts over key players pre-tournament, home wins over Scotland and Wales should be followed by another versus Italy, so surely that's a solid start, even if things go awry in the two away games. What would you, what, what would constitute a successful tournament to your mind? I think at this stage, given the way France have uh, reinvented themselves and become strong again for the first time since the 2011 season, if Ireland Ireland will beat Italy, it's and it's just hard to see how any other result will will occur in that match. If Ireland go to Twickenham and Paris and put in really good performances and back that up with three home wins, I think that would be. Pre pre season, you would say that would be par. At this stage, I think they will have reset their goals. And while it is, it's not illogical to say that Ireland could win a Grand Slam from this juncture. Most people don't really expect it to happen. I think most people expect England to do a number on Ireland in on Saturday week, largely based on what happened last season when they didn't just defeat Ireland, but they humiliated them in the World Cup warm up game, and then. At the Aviva last year, they pretty much bullied them. But there's there are a few differences. Firstly, Billy Vunapolo is unavailable. Tuolag, he's probably going to be unavailable from speaking to one of the guys on the... One of the beat reporters on the English scene last night. He was saying that he doesn't think either Tuolag or Slade will be back in time. Now, remember, Slade played really well against Ireland in the 32-20 match last year. So, there are significant factors. Add in... Also, that Elliot Daly has lost a bit of form. Also, at fullback, there are questions. I think he'd be really good. I think he is now where Jordan Larmer would have been a couple of years ago. Plus, they have a problem at 13. 
they've a problem at nine. Depending on who you talk to, some people think they've a problem at eight. I thought Curry played pretty well on Saturday against Scotland. Atoje isn't firing on all cylinders. So when you add all those factors into the mix, suddenly going to Twickenham on the back of two successive wins really does change the perspective to some extent because England are still dealing with the fact that they really underperformed in the World Cup final. So psychologically, we don't know where they are. We don't know what is actually going on inside their camp vis-a-vis the Saracens issue. I know publicly they're saying that it's all hugs and kisses and they love each other. But privately, we don't know. They, We will only find out in six months' time if there's a divisive camp there. Add everything into the mix. If Ireland go there and win, which they did two years ago, I mean, we're not talking about ancient history here. We're talking about modern history. The last time they went for a Six Nations match to Twickenham, they emerged victorious. And most of the players, two-thirds of that team, are going to be playing on Saturday week. So, if they go there, pick off a win, then suddenly Grand Slam is definitely on because they're going to beat Italy at home. And then you're going to Paris. Now, I know France have started superbly, but we can't make a definitive judgment call on this French team until they go away from home, until they trail in a match, which hasn't happened thus far this season. We really want to see what these kids are like when they hear 30,000 mad Welsh people sing Bread of Heaven after five minutes and Alwyn, Alan Wynne-Jones snarl in their faces and suddenly the Welsh get a, a lead or if they go to Murrayfield and they get weather conditions like they got uh, last Saturday. Will they then be as impressive as they were in the first half against England. They showed last weekend against the Italians that they're capable of suffering from poor concentration, from being sloppy, from not playing for 80 minutes. They didn't play for 80 minutes against England either. So, throw all those factors into the mix, and I wouldn't rule out a Grand Slam at this stage. What would be a satisfactory return for for Farrell? I think you've got to be realistic. Three home wins and two away performances you can't hang a man for that, not in his first campaign. You mentioned, Bernard, the difference from one week to the next in terms of people's perception of how things are going, really, in the Ireland camp. And last week you were saying that if Conor Murray didn't produce a, an 8 out of 10 performance, it would be difficult to continue selecting yeah. him. Do you think he produced that at Scrum Half at the weekend? Was it, a, yeah, it an was, 8? It was, definitely. Yeah, it was much better, and that's that's the reaction you want. Like, you want CJ. People questioning CJ. Um, he's responded. Peter Manny, you know, was dropped, came off the bench. Um, he stepped up. Connor, Connor, um, I think responded really well. His, his some of his passing was was exceptional, like really good quality. Um, he actually, you know, he put the ball out in front of Larmer for 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 his try. He put the ball out in front of Stockdale for that little breakdown to blind side. So. Um, he looked really sharp um, and I think as well for Connor, we have to again take into account the way Ireland set up to attack was very narrow right? so if you set up to if a team def- attacks narrow the defence will defend narrow which really m- meant there was very few opportunities for Connor to have a, have a snipe whereas in this if we continue with this shape um, and style of play the defence will obviously have to, to spread a little bit more and opportunities will, will open up for him to, to have the odd snipe which we've been critical of him because he hasn't really sniped with, with conviction and I thought his passing had, had dropped off a bit so um, I think he, he reacted really well and that's great that's what we want we want Conor Murray to be the number one um, uh, and it, it's great we've had someone like Cooney who's who's putting pressure on him because that hasn't been the case for a while and again you know he has responded now so I think that argument is over for a while, you know. But you know, I think the, 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 for the overall health of Irish rugby, you need to have competition. Like I, I I'm sure Keller will continue to put pressure on Herring. Uh, Kilcoyne's putting pressure on Healy. You know, Porter has looked really good this year. So there is a lot of strength and depth um, uh, across across most of the positions. Centres, for example, when Ringrose comes back, you know, how you know how can you drop Henshaw because he looked so good. So that's what that's what we want. Addison is, is a live contender to to put pressure on Larmer. So I think we have players now starting to hit form, a refined form, and there's there's a good bit of depth. There's a good under twenties team coming through again, but back back to back on last year. And yeah, you know, I think we're we're in a good place with listen, Andy Farrell has got has still got to have longevity and stuff, but um the most important thing for him post World Cup was to rehabilitate players mind and mood and confidence and it seems that that has happened and after that once you have a team an Irish team confident uh, well organized um, and enjoying the rugby I think 
you know they're good enough to win a lot of games. It's not like they're not uh, overachieving. They're a good team um, who've built up a, lot, a track record of success. Um, and you know I would agree with Gary. I think the key game is England. I think if you beat England. You know, you go, you go to France and you have an unbelievable chance of, of winning the Slam. And we're not really sure, but we, I'm not really sure how good England are. I'm, obviously, I think the conditions made it very difficult for them on uh, in Murrayfield. You know, they got to win, and maybe that'll heal them a little bit. Um, but there's definitely so many question marks around some of their foreign players, around Eddie himself and, and his mindset, um, that there could be a, a scalp to be had. Uh, there's a question here. You alluded to the back row a minute ago. Um, Ian was wondering, do you think that Doris would come in to come back in to start at Twickenham? He points out that Omani has been brilliant, but will need ball carriers to get us go forward against England's back row. Doris and Standard could be brilliant together, and having Omani to come on and hopefully help close out the game would be very to have, handy to have in the last 10 or 20 minutes. Well, there's one, one point there, Bernard, just to cut across is Darcy only played four minutes of rugby in the last month or so. So that, to then ask him to go from largely being inactive to go to Twickenham of all places and those towering stands that just seem to creep up towards the skies and asking this 21-year-old to n- not make his debut because he's done that, but he's only had four minutes of international rugby under his belt. So that's a big ask. Yeah, I think probably he's flipped. I think, you know, if you asked Andy Farrell to, to sketch his, his team for the five games... Uh, or the first three games, he he would have thought Doris would be going into um, England on the back of having two home games. Uh, and Completely I think, different circumstances. I think now, I think the fact yeah. that Omani's bounced back to form, it's nice to be able to reward those guys and have Doris on the bench as a as an impact player. And he can play six, and he can play eight. Um, and if you if you need to, you can obviously shove Peter across to seven if there was an injury. So, um, yeah, I I would imagine that they'll go with the tried and tested with Doris. You know, uh, if all being good, I, I do. I don't think he'll have lost fitness too much unless he had a very bad concussion. He'll have been able to do quite a bit of aerobic stuff. But I would agree in terms of collision fitness, um, he, you know, it, it's not ideal. And I think it'd be a much safer way of 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 helping him develop as an international player to have him come off the bench. Yeah, could make quite the impact in his own right. Of course, uh, a lot of interest actually in the back row in the whatsapp group members at the 42.e if you want to be a member there or if you want to be yeah a member of the group jangles has a question um a little bit more technical this one but an interesting one i think uh, considering how much of a jackal threat stander has been in the last two games do you expect him to continue in this vein of form or will ireland look to switch up the primary jackal to omani slash doris or van der fleer in the anticipation that england will now try to negate stander's impact yeah, for sure they will. I mean, you know, any uh, attack coach or breakdown coach who's scouting Ireland now and, and, and presenting to his team um, will actually, you know, probably identify Stander as being the key man. So, you know, when you're going to a breakdown, you're looking for Stander, whereas historically you're looking for Omani or even Roy Best was actually, you know, the scrum cap was an easy target. So there's only certain guys who are, who are world-class at, at the Jackal. You know, you even watch some international players and, well, one, their technique lets them down, but also their... Um, their mindset and their ability to get in there and, and get into a position where they're very vulnerable um, isn't isn't common to everybody. So, as a as an attack coach or uh, um, a continuity coach, you would always every week pick the two or three key targets that you must get away from the ball or, or, or get there before them. And I'm sure now Stander has put himself up in lights over the last two weeks, so he's going to have a sore neck and um, a pretty sore back over the next next couple of weeks if he, if he continues to, to go looking for those opportunities. <laughs> one last one still from the WhatsApp group for now, and it's a question specifically for you, Bernard, from Andrew Wood. And he was wondering, what are your thoughts on Rob Herring as a scrummager? He says, we seem to be getting on the wrong side of some decisions this year. And is this down to being best, having been a good scrummager uh, when under pressure, basically, and that maybe he, he hasn't quite been replaced in that capacity? Yeah, listen, as in terms of a technically good scrummager, best was probably up there with anyone I played against. Like, I played against Sebastian Bruno, um, Dimitri Swarovski, uh, who were more powerful. Uh, Warren Gatlin was actually a very good scrummager. Uh, that's how old I am. Um, uh, but best, which didn't really make sense because he actually was physically unimpressive in terms of weight, um, size, stature. But he had his innate... He liked scrummaging, which is help. Um, uh, and he had a very good technique, um, very strong, very strong uh, through the back and neck. And uh, he definitely was, an, was a key component of that scrum. You know, and you've got, a, you've got two brilliant props or four brilliant props, but he was a key man. And I think at the moment, 
I'm not sure if Herring is not a good scrummager. There's nothing obvious in terms of video analysis, in terms of his his body height or his binds or his positioning. Um, but certainly against Scotland, we were poor in that area. Um, and obviously that was that. In fairness, we regathered our, 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 ourselves pretty well after that first initial shock. Um, and I think there is that, there's that, I suppose, understanding of playing together. So Rory, if you, I'm not sure how many times Rory, Tig and Keane played together, but um, I'm sure it was was north of, of 30 40 you know and and when you've done that at a high level um you, you don't even need to talk about some things you actually know by feel mm. um i know some scrooch some scrum coaches they blindfold uh their front rows in live training sessions um to take away that and it sounds crazy because you actually don't see a lot Toulouse said doesn't see what the tight head is doing but it's to really i suppose heighten their senses and to be able to react by feel um, and then talk about it afterwards. So again, uh, sorry. The reason that's a, uh, I'm using that point is that those Roy Best played a lot with with Keen Healy Tyke for a long, and maybe uh, he was able to react to something that was happening right and left of him because of what he understands their strengths and weaknesses are from from experience and from being live. And Rob, if he stays in the in the jersey, and at the moment his throwing is is very good, is very good. Uh, or so our line out is, is is functioning pretty well. He looks lively around the pitch, uh, so you know he, he has the jersey, so he deserves to stay there. But I think that will develop over time. But as I said, I haven't played against him. Um, I know Keller is 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 uh, seen as a very good scrummager um, from second rows and props to play with him. I never heard her anything negative about Herring, and you do you generally do if someone's a weak scrummager. So um, I'd imagine he's okay. It's just he's just replacing a guy who was very good at that individually, but also had the the tactical and uh, now an understanding of us of the rest of the front row to to problem solve on their own hmm, time will tell if they gel even more ahead of tweaking them now Pinergy's free friday gives residential customers the opportunity to enjoy free electric vehicle charging every friday throughout 2020 allowing users to start the weekend with a full charge courtesy of Pinergy. sean farrell sat down with a Pinergy ambassador by the name of andrew conway for the podcast this week uh, he was very open actually about contract talks and gave a nice insight as well into his meditative preparation for training and match days I actually forgot to forward sell this at the top of the podcast so surprise here's andrew conway andrew conway thanks very much for joining us on the 42 rugby weekly after might i say uh, an excellent performance at the weekend another try 10 tries in 20 at international level it's turned out to be a pretty good record have you a favourite? Do you keep a running, a running power ranking, or what's your favourite so far? Uh, first, first definitely, first probably one my Australia, is it? No, South Africa, uh, South Africa in Dublin in 2017. Yeah, uh, it was a weird old try, is chasing a kick, and South Africa didn't manage to catch it. I just was able to pluck it from a bouncing ball and then go kind of in, in, in in the right corner. But for for some reason, that's probably my favourite rugby memory. Um, just scoring a try for for your country and in the kind of first mass like I, I was on the bench against England for my debut but this is kind of probably the first time I felt like I really belonged going into a match and the preparation and um and yeah it was uh, that was a, that was a special moment I think that was that would probably that'd be hard to beat yeah in, interesting to say that's when you felt you belonged I was going to ask you do you feel like you belong now having having started as you're getting a run in the starting team in big championship matches but but you felt you belong right from the start or is there another level up when yeah, you're it was, 15? yeah it wasn't necessarily the start it was i played england off the bench there was a few injuries then i went on the tour to american japan played in the two japanese games so not not that i didn't feel i belonged then but for some reason that's just the the memory the abiding memory i have of that week or that game feeling like right i belong here and then kind of Having a pretty good performance and and scoring a try was um, was standout really. Um, yeah, I think yeah, you, I felt like I belonged then, and and you just you need to keep adding and and growing with it because if if you're not if you're not growing with it, you're going to be left behind pretty quick. Do you feel you're playing the best rugby of your career now? In and around it, I think uh, different stages over the last three four years. Maybe there's been pockets here and there that um, probably the best. I, the best, most consistent I think I ever played was around, uh, was it in Rassi's first year, around the Christmas Interpros, then leading into 
it was actually just before I made the debut. So the Christmas Interpro was then leading into we had the, the th yeah the three because after Axel died, we remember we had the three Europe's back to back. So we had Racing Glasgow, Racing something like that, Racing away, Glasgow away, and then Racing at home. And they they were after the the couple of Interpros. I think it was Leinster and Connacht. And yeah, if that's for some reason that just it sticks out to me as as when I play it was playing my best. I think it was wasn't necessarily doing incredible things. It was it was just a consistency of performance um, and just getting stuck into it. And that was that was potentially a bit of a turning point as well. I made my debut with, within a, a couple of months, and then um, just tried to keep kicking on from there. Yeah, we mentioned before just about the benefit of, of a good preseason be, before the form you're building this season, and how you. Add little bits in into into your game off the field. Maybe a book a book here. Yeah, you spoke pretty well about meditation. Can you yeah. expand a little more on, on kind of how you've how you've built meditation into your training schedule or, or how you feel it, it benefits it, you? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of meditation is a funny one because it's not really quantifiable per se. But oh, did you ever hear Tim Ferriss? He, yeah, he's his podcast. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be, be a big Tim Ferriss fan himself but he interviews really good people um from across the board so he interviews world world leading performers in every every genre of of um of whether it's uh arnold schwarzenegger whether it's a chess prodigy whether it's a business mogul like across the boards athletes um he had a great one with tony robbins um but anyway sorry i'll go off yeah. point a bit he I think he always asks what like what the what your daily habits are. I think over ninety percent of them of the world leading performers meditate daily and I was always thinking, geez, that's that's mental. But then I tried to get into it a good few years ago and just couldn't. I couldn't get my head around waking up in the morning and then sitting still for anywhere from ten to twenty minutes to, to gather I just didn't understand it really. And I I don't necessarily massively understand it now, to be honest. But I I know from from just sticking with it and doing it, you feel better off with you, especially if you do it at the start of your day. It's just a really good way to start your day. You go into your interactions on a really positive note, and it doesn't mean everything's perfect by any stretch, but I think it just sets you up really well to to have a, to have a positive a positive start to your day. And if you can do that right, that's that's the first hurdle done, and you're you're kind of it just gives you almost a. a what's the word I'm looking for um it pu puts you a step ahead of the day in, in my experience uh as opposed to waking up and if you're if you're starting at eight waking up at if we're in camp we 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 have life pretty good so the breakfast is there first in the morning and just going right I'm up alarm quick breakfast into into the day it's getting up that bit earlier taking a bit of time to ease yourself into the day with with something like a meditation and then and then continuing on from there and off the back of that you start doing a bit more reading into it trying to learn about a bit about it and through doing that you learn a bit about other things and it's all kind of um a bit of a bit of a circle really yeah as you said there's there's tough to put a, your tangible finger yeah. on, on what it is but mm. if there's phrases around it like an uncluttered mind is probably mm. one of the things mm -hmm. that goes along with it yeah you can see that how that certainly can can affect you on the pitch can can aid yeah. you on the pitch when when we're talking about heads up rugby mm -hmm. when we're talking about decision making that that's a, that's something I can feed into. Yeah, exactly. And if you're, it starts off the pitch first. It's, it's what 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 your, what your habits are, and and then what you what energy you're bringing into different to different environments. Um, what conversations you're having with people, and whenever you're whenever you're doing the the likes of the meditation, they just tend to be of a higher standard. Again, don't ask me why, but they do. In my experience of it, you're just in a better place as a person. You're probably a bit more confident within yourself. You're a bit more comfortable within yourself, and the, all these all these things matter in the, in the all those little details matter in the grand scheme of, of everything, really. Especially when you're in the line of work we're in as performance on a weekly basis. How do I get to reach my maximum performance every week? And um, adding those little bits in, I think, is uh, is just a it's just an extra way to try and gain an edge i suppose and um yeah it's just it's it's interesting as well it's just a different side it's a different way to look at things yeah one of the things uh murray kinsler picked up on on his analysis on the 42 yesterday was um how much you were kicking on the edge both, both yourself and jacob when when you get get a, into a wide channel mm -hmm. rather than die with the ball or or, mm -hmm. or get a tackle that that you're you're chipping ahead you're looking mm -hmm. for space I, is that a pre-planned tactic or is it is it another case of heads up rugby you're seeing where the space is you're, you're 
Yeah, it's space. I think. I think space. If if the kick's on, then kick it to where the space is. If if the kick space is taken, then then run it or move move it, pass it, whatever. Um, yes, yeah, definitely. It's it's not nice as a back three if you're if you're going back retrieving balls as a forward pack. You're you're getting turned and you're having to make pressurized lineouts. Um, so it's having that kind of knowledge and responsibility as a winger. You're not just there to try and score a few tries. You're there to help the team out in any way you can and putting pressure on the on your opposition is, is a massive part of that and not leaving it down to the nines and the tens and the fifteens to, to do that. It's everyone's job. So uh, acknowledgement of, of where the space is, execution to get the ball there correctly, it's all it's all kind of linked, I suppose. Yeah, we've talked a lot of in recent weeks about um players being competitive for, for one position um and how they can they can get along grand <laughs> off off the field even if it appears fiercely competitive for one jersey. How has Keith taken his uh, his slot back, his step back out of the first team because he was so, such a fixture in that 14 jersey for so long and now you have to wrestle with him for it. Yeah, I wouldn't say he, he's... Uh, I wouldn't say he's been dropped at all, to be honest. He, he had a he had a, a grumpy knee there for, for a couple of weeks and um, he covers, as you saw on the weekend, he covers 13 a lot better than I'd cover 13. So, um, so yeah, like he, he in fairness, Faz just said listen you, you the back three are, are starting again i don't obviously what i wasn't privy to his conversations with keith but you wouldn't have known he he was his standard self and he came on and added massive value um as a 13 and um it, listen this is just because i started the last few games doesn't mean that i'm guaranteed anything um i know what early brings to the party with everything all his ability all his leadership qualities uh, all his experience all his x factor ever, everything that keith has is 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 obvious and everyone knows about it so um obviously i want to try and keep the starting jersey that's even though i'm really good friends with keith that's he want he wants to be starting i want to be starting there's no there's no secrets there but we won't let it get in the way of any bit of friendship or any way well, like we'll always be looking to make each other better I talk to him about the stuff we just touched on with the meditation the reading the different skills that we do extras together after after the sessions I pick his brains on a lot of stuff defensively um I kind of help him out with a bit of the high ball stuff that um that that I that I can that I can help him out with and um yeah just it's just working together as a as a mini as a mini team along with the other lads with Dave Carney with Jordan with Will Addison with Jacob and making sure we're not hiding things from each other, so we have an edge. That's if 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 people are at that, you're you're very short-sighted. It's about making sure we're we're as good as we can be as a collective, and then the individual will grow from that. Yeah. And lastly, I think uh, is your contract up in the summer? Or are you <laughs> in the process of, of working that out with uh, powers that be? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's ongoing. Yeah, it's definitely not done by any stretch of the imagination. But um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully something will get sorted. But you seem happy enough in Munster. Yeah, I am. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I'm 28 now. I have to have to do what's right for me. I ho- hopefully, it's it's to stay. Um, but you obviously have to look at look at all options. I'm not getting any younger. Um, 28 this year and. Hopefully, I've got about six, five, six years left of me at, at a really high level, and if that's with Munster in Ireland, then brilliant. But we do have to, I have to be um, making sure that I'm, I'm getting what I feel is, is, is the right deal because it's obviously important. We're not, we're not footballers, we're, we're rugby players, and it's not going to be forever money. So you need to make sure you get the right deal for yourself. But again, if it's, if it's to be here, brilliant. Andrew Conway, thanks very much. No worries. Thank you. Very interesting stuff. It's always nice to hear a rugby player speak like a human being and not a uh, pure bot. Uh, meditation, Bernard. That's uh, something that we've heard in the past from people like Richie McCaw. He, he swore by it. Uh, was it something you uh, did as a player or even as a coach? Did you see some of your own players use it as a sort of a, a preparative technique? It's become much more much more common and much more used. Um, I know Ireland um, at certain times you know, had this thing called mental gym so instead of actually doing a training session they all would go and meditate or individuals go and meditate and actually visualise the actions that they were supposed to do uh, in the session so say for example uh, week four of a Six Nations bodies are tired there's supposed to be a breakdown session which is live and an RPE or so rate of perceived ex- uh, exertion of 7 out of 10 Um you know, they pulled a session, but yet they still did a mental session, which players had to visualize their technique. And there's so much muscle memory at this stage for, for international players that sometimes you don't need to do it. Um, but 
you also don't need to ignore it either. So it's a halfway house where you get the physical recovery, but um, you're still actually practicing the the, the skill um, through that mental visualization and and um, uh, as well, mental gym. Well, it depends. Different people have better ways of getting into it. So some will do it with noise in, um, in their ears, and other people want to be completely quiet or listen to music. So I think it has become a tool. A lot of the, the sports psychs um, would certainly be advocates of it, and I, I think that. Yeah, every every in every individual now is looking for any possible um, tool to help them prepare better or recover better or or be better. And um, you know, someone like Conway, and it's great to when fellas um, like him who are who are banging form, you know, can actually give a reason why or something that's helped them, and hopefully that helps others to, I suppose, find. Um, find our form and, and, and be more comfortable because there's loads of people playing sport at amateur level who have the same hang-ups as, as, as others. You hear Raj talking about, you know, uh, running, um, hoping what was it, that there wouldn't be a conversion or the ball, there wouldn't be a penalty that you have to kick. Basically hoping if the team was uh, a try down, yeah. like, that they wouldn't score. Yeah. Because I had the same. I remember like hoping <laughs> kickers would miss touch so they wouldn't have to throw it in when I was going, had really bad times. And um, that's the same at pub league and stuff. Uh, there's individuals playing that who, who would enjoy the game so much more if if they had better tools to, I suppose, prepare for the, the skill set that's demanded of them. So I think it's I think it's great and fair play to him for 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 being open about it. And I thought he was outstanding. I mean, um, you know, they need to get different people picking a man the match because it can't be just a backer every week. But I think Conway <laughs> Conway as a uh, Conway as a, as a guy who's probably relatively unestablished, you know, um, has been knocking on the door over the last year. I just thought he had nearly a pitch perfect game uh, in all aspects, whether it was uh, his running, his kicking, um, his defence. Uh, he was he was very good, so I think that was uh, it was great to see. And he he now is he's probably got ahead of Earls, as, as Gary said. Mm, yeah, and it's interesting even hearing him talking about his contractual situation. Obviously, there's always a bit of a game being played there. He mentions how he wants to get the best possible deal for himself, which is his absolute right particularly when this is a short career and as he points out well, I'll tell you rugby what, money isn't forever money this he's in he's in negotiations and every time he plays he's he's putting a few quid onto his contract so the RFU and the agents are always involved in this game of game of poker around this time of year it always seems to be January for the for the real poster boys and superstars it tends to be November but for most players January is the key month of the year. And sorry, we're now into February, but the the talks began in January, possibly even beforehand. I've a feeling there is interest from France, but I have a stronger feeling that if a good deal is put on the table, the Irish player, no matter, not just Conway, but any Irish player will stay in Ireland because they want to represent their country, because of what has happened to Zebo and to a lesser extent, Ian Madigan. Players know if they if they leave, that's it. Your international career is over until you come back to Ireland. Conway has just broken into the team, has scored four tries in the last five games, is in exceptional form. And this game of poker that I alluded to a few minutes ago, basically he's winning that game now because his performances are so good that he can really go with a much stronger hand, negotiating hand, when they finalise the deal, which they probably will over the next month or so. I was speaking to Shane Horgan a couple of weeks ago and he made the point that he felt there was a lot of revisionism in the wake of Joe Schmidt's exit, probably both in a good sense and in a bad sense, that like people were being suddenly very critical retrospectively uh, who weren't at the time when things were going well and also that maybe people were kind of bigging him up where there were definitely blind spots during the World Cup and Conway has really gone and proved that he was one of those blind spots over the course of the last few months, hasn't he? Yeah, I've got... I see both sides of this argument. Essentially, Schmidt did a superb job in Irish rugby. And when 2018 finished, they'd won the Grand Slam, they'd won the first tour to Australia since 1979, and they defeated the All Blacks. So you can understand why he would stay loyal to those players. Because... Okay, it's for pundits. It's our job is to to work on hindsight. For coaches, their job is to have foresight. That's why they get paid the big bucks, essentially. Uh, so Schmidt deserves praise for the job, the overall job he did, but also deserves to be 
pulled up to an extent for the decisions he made in the World Cup. When you look at how Conway and Larmer are playing now, you kind of wonder why they weren't selected by this very, very intelligent coach whose knowledge of the team uh, exceeds everyone else's, to be fair to the coach. I always have had the opinion that you can't be critical of their team selections because they see more. They think about it a lot more. Their reputation and their income is on the line. So they're making these decisions based with a, with a much deeper knowledge base than what we would have. So you have to back them to an extent. But then when results go poorly, which they did in Japan, you also have to look at the fact that nobody forced Joe Schmidt or Andy Farrell or any head coach to go into this job. They're not conscripts. They volunteered for this. They're very well paid to do to take on this responsibility. So they're not above criticism. Plus, the other factor is, in the Monday morning review sessions, now, I wasn't privy to them. Nobody was apart from the players involved. But apparently Schmidt was very critical of the players. Now, he did that in a private setting as opposed to a public setting. So if he is prepared to be critical with one hand, then on the other hand, he's going to have to accept criticism. So while I have nothing but respect for, for any head coach who goes through the madness of this profession, and, and it really is madness, as you well know, at the same time, as a point I made earlier, they're not conscripts. This is the life they chose, and part of that life is taking criticism. If you don't want to take the criticism, just go be a teacher again and uh, coach the under-14 team. Yeah, although the way the way schools rugby is going, you might get a bit of criticism for coaching the under-14s <laughs> as well. For sure. Uh, the, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Bernard? Like, because... Look, if people, a lot of people do have take umbrage with criticism of Schmidt, given all he achieved for Irish rugby. And as Gary points out there, as a journalist or as a pundit, you nearly defer to the coach until it goes wrong because he has, he or she has seen more than you have. Um, but and also, you only sorry, see sorry, the performance. Sorry to cut across there, Gab. No also, if you, if you look at it, if people are going to, history will be kind to him. There's course, absolutely yeah. no doubt about it. He may be getting uh, the first sort of slaps now that he's had in his career because his career has been so successful. The nature of any sport and of any top-level manager stroke coach is that you will have good times and a few bad times. Like, Jose Mourinho has been sacked. He's a serial winner. Alex Ferguson was sacked, the most successful soccer manager in the history of the sport. So silly things do happen in sports. Sometimes you don't necessarily get all the breaks. When Schmidt reviews... His decision to take a year out will is definitely going to bring him to a different place when he goes back into full time coaching, because he will be he, the criticism he's getting publicly may sting, but he will be more self critical than than anybody uh, can imagine, and he has spoken about that in the past in press conferences. He has shown I found him a fascinating character because while he had this reputation of being uh, an authoritarian, he sh- he often showed a vulnerable side to his personality in press conferences. He's a really well-rounded individual, a very intelligent man, who, if he learns from the mistakes he made, could become even more successful in his next job. So, But I definitely think history will be kind towards him, Gavin. Even if he is getting a bit of stick now, when people look back on the six years... You've just got to say, fantastic job. Well, it's in human nature to idealise people as well when they're no longer part of our life so much. So I'm sure, yeah, when we do reflect in the years to come. And even now, he's already a, an absolute legend in the realm of Irish sports coaches, not just in rugby. He's probably the most popular coach stroke manager in Irish sports since Jack Jordan. And if they had had a good World Cup, he possibly could have surpassed Big Jack. And you don't say those words lightly. No, that's very true. Uh Bernard, I thought it was interesting watching the Irish women's team over the last couple of weeks, just that the pattern of their games nearly seemed to follow uh, the pattern of the men's games. Like the first victory against Scotland, I felt that game was nearly starting to ebb away from them until Bavin Parsons made an intercept. And then against Wales, they were just a lot more dominant um, and produced a sort of a more polished, more accomplished overall performance. They're a team that if we're mentioning Schmidt getting criticism, a lot of people feel as though they haven't 
it's probably wrong to say they haven't gotten the criticism that they that they deserve, but they haven't really faced the scrutiny that they should, given they are a national team. Have you been have you been impressed by their start to the tournament, particularly their victory last week? Yeah, I think there's, there's definite signs of of big changes. Um, the reality is, uh, everyone knows this, but it's a two tier competition within a competition. Um, and Ireland, luckily, have those three games at home against the teams that we're probably competing with in terms of resources and uh, and talent. Um, but yes, last year was, and the year before were so frustrating because there was actually no real um, obvious style of play, no real obvious strategy. We just seemed to be miles behind and obviously you know the team um the team five or six years ago brought brought the country so much joy and and, and brought a level of respect on a, on a worldwide level and uh, listen there's reasons for it the sevens program has become a huge focus so the best athletes and the probably the most resources go into that and and, and the, uh, that team are competing uh, in the world series now and, and you know representing us really well but I, what i liked about last weekend against wales in particular um was a, it was an improvement again, as you said, on, on Scotland. I think Scotland was a very difficult game for them because they knew if they lost that, you know, um, the whole season was going to be written off. And obviously Scotland have improved. Obviously Goose, um, uh, Philip Doyle has gone over there. He was coming back. Um, he would know a lot of girls in the in the squad. You know, it would have been a difficult, and they have a lot of time for him as well. So it would have been a difficult game for him to, for them to prepare for, um, I think, emotionally with the pressure they're under. Once they got that win under the belt, I thought they were much more composed um, and more mature in their performance against against Wales, and um, I think there's some some really good experienced players like Lindsay Pete and uh, Senanupu uh, who are kind of gluing it together. Michelle Claffey, but now you've got some youngsters coming through. Obviously, Bevan Parsons um, is probably the star of the team. She's 18, doing her mocks. I think this week um, wants to do medicine, um, and whether she plays again in the Six Nations because of study requirements um, is, is probably um, going to be interesting and key to Ireland's success. But also, um, I thought the tie-up prop, Linda Dujang, was was phenomenal. Um, there was an a, a impact player off the bench, Doherty Wall, who looks like she, she could have a big um, uh, future at this level. So these are all green shoots that we hadn't really seen. And I think everyone's willing to be patient with them and, and give them time. Um, once we see that development so I think they've moved on a lot in, in the two weeks the, the, the challenge is obviously to beat Italy who are you know Italy beat Wales Italy are a are, are good side is to not let it become the, the performances against England and France get get too far away from them and the results get too too heavy really and, and that, that's not to you know I, I'm all for the underdog etc but there's just no real way you could say that Ireland could, can be competitive against France or England based on no. what we've seen and there's a reason for it there isn't a hope in hell and that's no. not to denigrate it's, no. it's a reality um, or we'll see it become a reality I yeah. fear like, cannot reality be changed Bernard the only in, way to change in it five is, years ten years then. look at Fran- uh, women's rugby in France is is hugely popular um, the participation, rate, participation rates are, are very high the, the the pick they have to pick from they play in front of a big stadium so they move it around all the south of France I mean they played in Grenoble last year um, I think they were 18,000 you know it's just a very it's a very well, I suppose, funded, um, uh, well-resourced game over there at a, at a level, you know, far and above where we're at here. They've got a very good domestic competition. Um, some of the players play in the in the military teams, and, and so they're effectively full-time athletes, but they're paid to be in the in the military or, or the police forces. Um, and there's this big allowance for time off to, to follow your sport there, particularly in representing your national side. So, um, and then England have gone, I think, nearly fully pro. Even Scotland, in fairness, I think, uh, apparently Philip Doyle has convinced 10 of the girls to um, uh, to give up their jobs or go back into study to allow them prepare for a World Cup um, qualification um, uh, challenge so like we are against uh, pushing against the hill a little bit in terms of that um, and again it's look at there's so much chaos in, in, in pro rugby you know and we've been professional I don't know professional 24 or 5 years we see you know the championship being uh, this week um, the Saracens thing there's, there's always issues that are arising so we can't say the men's game have it right, um, but definitely you would like to hope um, that the RFU can continue to invest in in coaching, get the structures right, uh, so this young talent we see um, have an avenue to, to develop, you know, regularly, and, and this Irish team can become eventually trying, you know, catch up to, to England and France, but it's going to be a it's going to be a long road. But it is also a possibility that 
when you point back towards the advent of professionalism in the men's game and the pattern was then that Irish players would apply their trade abroad uh, you think of like I remember Jordan Murphy like how, how sort of nearly exotic it was that he was doing so well for Leicester and it may be the case that that happens with the Irish female players in that there is an avenue potentially to be professional in England Gary, like uh, Harlequins are, are running a very tight ship over there. They seem to be uh, doing really good things. So it might just be the f- that maybe there will be no closing of that two tiers to which Bernard alludes over the next five, ten years. But as unfortunate as it sounds, it might be more of a sort of a, a 20-year project uh, to catch up. Yeah, they may have to... It- it depends on how much is in the piggy bank and like we were speaking early earlier about the negotiations that Andrew Conway is involved in you're looking to to fund the professional game in Ireland is largely dependent in fact almost entirely dependent on the men's national team uh, nonetheless you can't ignore all their strands of the sport and if you were to set aside a a, a fair degree of money it, it would be a lost leader you could professionalize it i would imagine for a fairly a fairly decent price professionalize the uh, the national women's team but the issue then would be do the are the structures outside of international games there to support fully professional players what do you think um at the moment i don't think the club game is at the level you have to basically reinvigorate or 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 restructure the club game or find ways for for uh, those players to play at a, at a is a female level. pro 14 a realistic of course, everything is realistic if, you, if you're willing to f- if the national government body are willing to, to put funds behind it. i mean we saw the, the british, british, british irish, 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 cup, british and irish cup for yeah. effectively the a teams in um in, uh, in the pro 14 teams but the crowd like there was no real interest in it it was it was a game but like they didn't really get, I mean, um, any fans to it. Leinster got a few, Munster got a few, particularly to play each other. But realistically, it was effectively matches being played behind closed doors for the development of of the next generation, which is absolutely important. You need to find a, an avenue for them to play. Um, but also, the, you know, you know, they go back and play at a good level in the All Ireland League as well. Um, I'm not sure that the All Ireland League level in 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 in, in the women's game. Well, I'm sure it's not at the level of of international rugby, same as the men's game in, in the AIL, but maybe it's a little bit higher um, at the moment. And I, I suppose that would be the the big thing for me. I think if you've got a strong club game um, and you put some investment into that, uh, eventually the internal competition will will rise through. Um, and I don't think it'd be that expensive to get. I think it'd be a lot cheaper to get a, a I suppose a, a a restructured or or better funded club game where the money goes across a. A wide range of of clubs um, that maybe having a, a full time professional team. And I agree with you. That those, you know, it wouldn't cost a lot in terms of salaries. There's no massive salaries that be needed. But realistically, if they're just training full time, there'll only be a limited um, bounce factor. I think if if you could have, you know, a really good club game. Um, yeah, they need an outlet. Yeah, in between they need the facilities as well. Obviously, they need they need access to gym programs. They need facilities. They need rehab, physio, nutrition, etc. Um, so there is a lot of a lot of things that they need, um, and so they have some of them. It's just, I suppose, getting your um, you know put, putting your net out wider. Uh, and they have done that for the for the sevens. There's been a lot of cross transfer from other sports where they basically identified you know people who were uh, ladies who were or women who were strong athletes. And converted them into sevens players, and hopefully they'll come back to to fifteens because then they've learned the game. Um, so it's possible. It's just, I suppose, the the hunger to do it and the plan. Yeah, like all of these things, uh, they take time, I suppose, and we'll see how it plays out over the coming months and years. Just to briefly touch upon that next generation, then Bernard, you've been watching uh, the under twenties fairly intently, and similarly enough, uh, overall, uh, an impressive start. I mean. Two convincing performances, really, as opposed to the men's and the women's. But um, who have been the standout operators for you I, I, so far? I really like Jack Crowley to 10. And I think it's interesting that he's come through from Bandon. He's Cork Con now. Um, and last year's group had Ben Healy, Jake Flannery and Harry Byrne. I mean, and they've all played provincial uh, Pro 14 level already. So, um, you know, we've got some big, real depth coming through. He's class. Um, there's a 
second row from Shannon, Thomas Tom O'Hearn. Um he's six foot six or seven, moves really well, uh, likes to offload. Um so he's someone that I think has got a lot of potential to come through. Clarkson, the tight head, is the second year back, has been outstanding. I know he's in Leinster Academy. We have, I don't think we've seen him for, for Leinster at provincial level yet, but um, he's been good. The hooker, Stewart's been good. And uh, there's a player who comes through the exile system, the centre, uh, 13, Dan Kelly, who looks really powerful. And then Andrew Smith looked good, and Michael's kid, um, plays with Clontarf now, he looked really explosive last weekend, he didn't get much ball the, the previous week, um, but there's a couple of interesting ones, like just in terms of for, for players who maybe aren't in the system at the moment, the the sub-lock, uh, or lock back row, Joe McCarthy, he's only playing rugby two or three years, he was in uh, transition year in, in Black Rock, big lad, and, and, and hadn't been playing rugby, and one of the SCT said to him, why don't you give it a go? And now he's he's coming off the bench for, for, for Ireland as an 18-year-old. He's got two more years left, and looks like he's got the physical capacity to be anything. Um, and then the other lock was a guy, Keen Prendergast, who, who went to Newbridge. He didn't make the Junior Cup team as a fullback um, in Newbridge, and now he got his, his cap for the Irish in 20. So just for players who maybe are a little bit are frustrated or, or not... Uh, in the system as they want don't lose faith there's there's, there's plenty of uh, of avenues back in if you've got resilience yeah you mentioned Crowley there as well like traditionally in Cork players coming out of uh, Cork schools rugby would have gone to Christians Prez yeah. and that was it Crowley went to Bandon Grammar he's a product of Bandon RFC obviously as you mentioned playing at Con now but it is a good sign, isn't it? Like you, sp- you talk about uh, spreading the net wide in the women's game, and it seems as though that is starting to happen in Ireland, and not just in Leinster, where we've seen players come in from, say, Offaly and Wexford, uh, and make the Irish senior team, but now in other parts of the country as well. Well, Tom O'Hearn, the lock is Waterpark originally, so that's where he learned to play to play rugby. There's the sub out half. Um, is a guy called Tim Corkery who's from Kilkenny Rugby Club, not Kilkenny School, Kilkenny Rugby Club. Um, he was a gifted hurler, uh, played minor for Kilkenny, and I think Kilkenny apparently told him if he keeps playing rugby, he can't play hurling. And he said, I'm going to play rugby, I think I can make it. <laughs> uh, I actually met someone yesterday who had to go down and tell him he'd missed out on the he'd screening for Leinster in her 20s last year. He missed out on it, had to go down to Kilkenny and tell him that he hadn't made it. But a week later, someone else um, did their shoulder. He got brought back in, ended up being the starter, and now he's on the bench for Ireland. So uh, and it's just great to see a fellow like that who was obviously multi-skilled, backed himself, um, looked like it, it, it was going wrong, an opportunity opened up, and now he's back in the system. So, uh, But is I think that, that's the big thing for me, is when I look through this 20s team and where they've come from, yeah, you have the Rock and the Michaels and, and, and uh, the big schools, but also you have you know players from, from places that you know, haven't had that same access to training time and, and facilities and coaches who through persistence and, and development are, are coming through, which is which is brilliant. Yeah, you allude to the potential depth we'll have at out half as well, looking at the twenties last year and this year. And then you see Adam Flannery scoring a try for Rockwell yesterday, who's the younger brother of uh, Jake, so it seems as though the conveyor belt in the Flannery household and beyond will uh, continue to roll out. Uh, gentlemen, thanks a million for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everybody at home for listening. Remember, if you want to sign up for our extra podcasts, and there'll be four of them every match week or every week during the Six Nations, I should say. It's members.the42.ie. And we will catch you again on next week sometime. I haven't decided yet. (laughs) There's no match this week, so it throws things off kilter a little bit. Early next week, maybe Thursday, I don't even know. Until then, take it easy. I don't think we've met before. But I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Rugby, rugby, weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, 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 o